Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the occupation of the national capital represents the greatest challenge to the legitimacy of the federal government since the October crisis. Many have been critical of Justin Trudeau's leadership. Just what does he need to do to move us forward? And Ottawa's occupation has been the result of unrivaled coordination between anti-vaxxers and anti-government organizations. How have the conspiracy theorists steered the truckers' protest? And Michael Mangeris, professor at the Ted Rogers School of Management, is going to join us to discuss the economic impact of the protests on the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The debate continues about how the government should be responding uh, to this. And of course, it's moved back to Parliament Hill and to uh, the Commons itself. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was at the House of Commons in person to take part in the emergency debate the other night. Uh, it was the first time, actually, since before the winter holiday break that uh, the Prime Minister was isolating, of course. And uh, a defiant Trudeau denounced the actions of the protesters who snarled the Capitol heading into the 11th day. Here's the Prime Minister's comment. Individuals are trying to blockade our economy, our democracy, and our fellow citizens' daily lives. It has to stop. Well, how does that happen? Uh, there's a, a great deal of concern right now about leadership or lack thereof, of course, uh, when we're looking at how this is going to be resolved and how we're dealing with it. Uh, maybe one of the most poignant uh, pieces that you could read about this uh, appeared in the Globe and Mail the other day. Uh, it's entitled, uh, The Ottawa Occupation is the October Crisis Revisited. Justin Trudeau must be bold. The author of the piece is Andrew Kona. Andrew, of course, is a journalist and professor at Carleton University and the author of Two Days in June, John F. Kennedy and the 48 Hours that made history. Andrew, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. Uh, we're, we, you mentioned leadership. We talk about this. You draw the analogy uh, with what's happening in Ottawa right now with a, a, a crisis that his father faced, of course. We're talking about the October crisis uh, and the way that he acted. Uh, is, is it fair to, to suggest or demand uh, that Justin Trudeau act like his dad in a situation like this? Well, he can learn from his dad as much as he might not want to. Um, those of us who have a, a memory of the October crisis, and I do as a child, uh, will remember that it was a hostage-taking. Um, James Cross, the British Trade mm -hmm. Commissioner, was kidnapped in Montreal. He was on his front lawn. And um, later, Pierre Laporte, a provincial cabinet minister, was kidnapped. He was murdered. Uh, Pierre Trudeau thought the government of Quebec was weak. He worried that it might collapse and fall into elements which were undemocratic. So he imposed the War Measures Act. He sent the troops into the streets, and he suspended civil liberties. And uh, it was a difficult moment for Pierre Trudeau, a civil libertarian. But at the end of the day, uh, it resolved the crisis. It crushed the FLQ, the FLQ, Front de Liberation de Quebec, which had been for seven years, Bill, bombing and robbing and creating mayhem in Quebec between 1963 and 1970. Well, uh, when the Beiner-Meinhof gang in Germany and the Red Brigades in Italy were running amok, uh, uh, we had, he had crushed the FLQ. Canada was spared. So it was an iron fist. It was, um, it was um, imprecise. There were uh, undoubtedly uh, injustices. Civil liberties, uh, in some cases, were abused and abridged. But at the end of the day, he did what he had to do to protect the integrity of the federal government. So what is Justin Trudeau facing today? He's facing a, a, a hostage-taking of a different order. You have whatever it may be, 100, 200, 250 truckers who have uh, brought in what their weapons are, which are trucks. Some of them are immobile, immobilized in Ottawa, no more than two miles from where I'm talking to you now, Bell. 
Uh, their wheels taken off. We, some people suggest there are arms or explosives uh, in there. We don't know. Intelligence hasn't told uh, the RCMP or the Ottawa police. And they are saying, uh, leave government, uh, uh, Pierre Trudeau, uh, um, or, um, or accede to our demands. Well, a democratic government can't do either, and they are holding this city hostage. Not the whole city, the parliamentary precinct, some 30,000 people. And as you've read, though, they've closed restaurants and stores and clinics and libraries and disrupted the lives of people for 12 days now. I consider this a threat to the integrity of the state, and I think that is what uh, Justin Trudeau has to respond to. How he does may be imprecise. It may not be the military in the streets, but he needs to be stronger than he has been. Especially when the stated purpose of many of the people that are organizing this right now is to is to oust the government, uh, the, the dual elected government. You, you mentioned in the piece, though, Andrew, and I, I do remember watching and living through what happened in the October crisis, uh, and the uh, the now famous interview that uh, that uh, the Prime Minister, that's of course Pierre Trudeau, gave on the steps of the Parliament buildings one day. Uh, when he was asked about, you know, just how far he was going to go. And the, now the famous quote, of course, just watch me. But there's, you know, the, the, I, I remember the whole interview. I've got a copy of it on YouTube that I watch every now and then. Uh, it was a bold moment and, and, a, and a defining moment for Canada and for that Prime Minister Trudeau uh, to basically say, uh, you know, you're not going to do this to me. And, and you also referenced, of course, uh, uh, not too long after that with the, the St. John Baptiste parade in Montreal where he refused to leave the... Uh, the reviewing stand, despite the fact that everybody else bailed out because of the other, uh, well, the riot essentially that was going on, he's got that reputation. Um, and and I know you make the, the the point here. Justin is not Pierre Trudeau, and and I know that's one of the criticisms a lot of people have had of him. You know, I wish he was more like his dad. How can he summon up not necessarily a repeat of what his father did, but do something? I mean, he has to make a stand. He can't just sit here and acquiesce and simply say, "Well, we're going to negotiate." That that's simply not going to get things done. His dad so, was definitive. He hasn't been yet. No, he hasn't been yet. And, and you know, there are areas of, of conflicting jurisdiction. Parliament Hill is the federal government. Wellington Street, which, um, which abridges or borders Parliament Hill, is not. It's, 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 uh, it is um, uh, uh, civil, uh, municipal jurisdiction. Uh, the government of Ontario has to, act, I think, formally ask the federal government to involve itself. But no doubt, given that we think there's American money here, that we think many of these are American agitators, certainly the language they're using, the vulgarity, the, the messaging of don't tread on me, they call themselves patriots, they talk about freedom in a way most Canadians do not, um, certainly should be attracting the attention. And it is to a degree of the federal government. I mean, the Minister of Public Safety and the Minister of Emergency Preparedness have said things. But we're now in our 12th or 13th day, Bill. And at some point, why have they not been told, you must leave now or else? Uh, your licenses will be suspended as, as truckers. Your insurance will be cancelled. Uh, you'll be violating uh, court orders. I mean, they, you know, just uh, yesterday, they, they, uh, a judge did order them to stop honking. They've been honking mm -hmm. for 10 days. And, Bill, it's 85 uh, decibels. And if you're near there, it's enormously intimidating. People say that this hasn't been without violence, and they're right. That is a major difference between the October crisis and today. There has been no murder or kidnapping or serious violence. But it, it, it can happen, and the longer you let this go on, my, my view is you undermine the integrity of governments and the state generally, and that is what the alt-right, who are behind this, as far as we're told, want exactly to do. They want to enroll the power of the state, and why there are many elements in the United States, from Donald Trump on down, who's, who are well into this, talking about it all the time, and think that's a good thing. 
um, that's a good thing. Well, we don't think it's a good thing in Canada, where we believe more in the, pr- the preservation of order um, uh, than a loss of liberty. Um, so that is where we are today, and the Prime Minister has to be more present. He disappeared for five days. Yes, he had COVID, but he was moved to a so-called undisclosed location um, after this first started. That politically didn't look right. I'm not saying it was his call, and I'm not saying he's cowardly. I have no reason to think that's either, but he has to be more more present in defense of the legitimacy of the government, which is under threat here now. I got to tell you, quick aside, uh, when they made that announcement that the prime minister had tested positive and was going to be moved, the first thing I thought of, Andrew, was that Jean-Baptiste situation Mm -hmm. and his father's stand on that. Uh, that I'm going to be here. You're not going to make me go away. And and you're right. I'm I'm sure that it was security forces that said, Mr. Prime Minister, we got to get you out of here. I get that. But, you know, he can overrule that. I mean, we're looking, I think, for a defining moment here from this leader. And what we've heard an awful lot from the government is what they're not going to do. They're not going to negotiate. They're not going to extend an olive branch. Okay. But what are you going to do? What's your plan in a situation like this? And how do you stand up to this? Because as we've seen, not only is the Ottawa uh, occupation uh, ongoing, now we're starting to see in other parts of the country. In other words, you know what happens in a situation like this. People are going to say, hey, they, they can do it. We can do it, too. It's, you know, it may sound alarmist or, or, um, or terrifying, but there is, there is reason to believe there are elements beside this or behind this beside the truckers, and it's beyond now anti-vax mandates, which are overwhelmingly embraced in Canada, which has among the highest levels of vaccination in the world. The challenge is facing down what is a mob. It isn't a mob yet running amok everywhere. It, it could. It's certainly inspiring people elsewhere. And at a certain point, you have to say you're holding the city hostage. It's some 30,000 people. It's commerce. It's schools. It's libraries. It's vaccination clinics. It's normal life. And you're terrifying them. And at a certain point, if the city can't do it and the province can't do it, the federal government has to do it. And up to now, there's been talk, as you say, we keep hearing, Bill, all options are on the table. We've been hearing this from the police now for 12 days, except they don't seem to take any of the options that are on the table. They say they're options, but they don't seem to embrace them. So you wonder why they think the government thinks these folks will go away. Uh, the police chief kept calling about de-escalation. There's been no de-escalation. They're digging in. They love the attention. Oxygen, I mean, uh, publicity is oxygen to these people. That's how they move. They're funded, as we see. There's money coming in from the United States and a, 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 one of the GoFundMe sites, not called that, but something else. They raised 5 or $6 million. I would presume it's mostly American money. And we're, this is what we face. So it's beyond simply an occupation. It's something more than that. I think it's the greatest threat to the authority of the government of Canada since the October crisis. Well, and we know some of the players here, and you know, one or two of them are truckers, I understand that, but I mean, most of these people are well-known uh, to authorities because of their anti-government actions and statements over the past, and uh, as we're going to discuss this a little bit later on in the program, but these, these people are savvy. They know what they're doing, and they're organized. Uh, and, uh, you know, we referenced there was a, a Facebook posting, I guess, the other day from Mr. Botter, one of the organizers, uh, that basically told the supporters, stop talking about the vaccine and instead use the word freedom. And they've picked up on that. Pierre Polyev's picked up on that right now. Everybody who wants to support these guys. Th- this isn't about vaccines anymore. This is this is the, the same chance that we heard in July, January 6th in, in the Capitol in Washington a year and a half ago. And it's the same playbook that they're using here now. You're right. It's not as violent yet. Hopefully it won't be. Uh, but the intent is the same. 
Well, reframing the narrative is, and reframing and reclaiming the narrative and saying to Canadians what's important here. That is the challenge of the federal government. And the Prime Minister did give a speech on Monday in the House of Commons. It was in the evening. I don't know what is going on there, uh, but at some point, I think he has to discover his inner Trudeau. Because if he doesn't, uh, this will go on without direction from the federal government, and he will come out looking uh, weak, uh, indecisive, uh, without resolve or principle. I don't think he's that type of person, and I think he wants to show that. I think he talks about that. But at some point, there has to be an ultimatum to this crowd. You have to leave or else. And we haven't gotten to the or else yet. Well, and as you please, I know we're just about out of time here, but uh, that quote again from that uh, uh, that interview that he gave on the steps of the Parliament buildings, of course, and you mentioned, we all know that Pierre Trudeau had libertarian tendencies himself, uh, but to say it's more important to keep law and order in this society uh, than to pursue those indicated just where he stood on this, and I guess that's what we're looking for uh, from the current leadership, too. Uh, it's a great article. Again, I, I, I encourage our listeners to go to the Globe and Mail webpage. I think it's still up there, uh, it, and it, it uh, outlines it exactly what we're dealing with. Uh, Andrew, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate it. Have a good day. Take care. Bye-bye. Andrew Cohen, of course, uh, from Carleton University, professor and, of course, journalist. Uh, you'll see his writings uh, from time to time in some of the uh, Canadian newspapers and editorial pages as well. I think it speaks to the frustration a lot of us are feeling right now and the fact that we kind of feel helpless, many of us here, because we're wondering, hey, what can we do? But what's the government doing about this? And, and his point's well taken. The Ontario government's basically taken a sideshow seat to this here. They're, they're not getting involved in this. You know, the premier says he's, he's supporting the truckers. Well, it, it, how helpful is that at this stage? And, and the government does have tools at their disposal. The provincial government does, municipal government does, and certainly the federal government does. And uh, when you read the piece uh, that, that Andrew Cohen wrote uh, that appears in the Globe and Mail, he's not advocating calling out the army like, like Pierre Trudeau did. That's an option, but not necessarily the one you want to pursue. But there are other things that can be done here. And you've got to be adamant about this. This is an organized group, and it's gone way beyond vaccine mandates. This is something else about, as he mentions here, our, our, our democracy and our way of government, and our way of life is under attack right now. And we have to stand up for it. And that's what we elect people to do for us. And we need to see a lot more positive action about that. So uh, we'll see what happens. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we were just talking about with Andrew Cohen a couple of minutes ago, the uh, protests and the occupation of uh, downtown Ottawa continues as uh, politicians continue to debate uh, what's going on there. Hundreds of trucks are still parked outside of the parliament buildings at the two-week marker, uh, with less honking in the capital, of course, because of that restraining order. But Ottawa Police Service have raised another potential issue with the convoy. Uh, Global's Kyle Benning has details. The Ottawa Police Service says there are more than 400 semis and large trucks parked in the city's downtown core. Deputy Chief Steve Bell says children have been living in about a quarter of them. We're not at the stage of looking um, to do any sort of uh, enforcement activity around that. We'll rely on the Children's Aid Society to help provide and give us guidance. City Hall is asking for help from heavy tow truck operators from across the province. Ottawa City Manager says its towing operators don't want to move them for fear of impacting relationships with trucking companies. Kyle Benning, Global News. So who's calling the shots here? I, I know initially this was called a trucker's protest, and as we mentioned, there are certainly truckers there. Uh, somebody drove those rigs in there, but uh, there's more at play here. Uh, and uh, there's a piece in The Guardian that I think covers an awful lot of the concerns and a lot of the questions that we've been asking over the last little while. Uh, the title of the article is 5G and QAnon, How Conspiracy Theorists Steered Canada's Anti-Vaccine 
truckers' protest. Uh, the author of the piece is uh, Justin Ling. Justin, of course, is a freelance investigative journalist uh, whose uh, work often appears in McLean's and, of course, in The Guardian. He joins us on The Bill Keller Show to talk about the piece and, and his observations so far. Justin, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for being with us today. Good morning, Bill. You've done an awful lot of work on this, and, and you've, you've actually kind of verified what a lot of people were wondering. Where's the money coming from? Uh, where's the organization coming from? We know there are some spokespeople uh, that we're told represent this group, and, uh, well, they've got a history, don't they? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's not tough to look at some of the folks involved in the planning and the administration of this of this convoy of this occupation, and, and realize that they're not exactly in the mainstream of Canadian society. The guy who founded Canada Unity, the group which you know, organized, started, conceptualized the convoy is a guy who believes in QAnon, who thinks that the last U.S. presidential election was stolen, uh, who thinks the COVID-19 is a pandemic. It was started by Bill Gates to improve Pfizer profits or something. It can be hard to figure out what they actually believe. Um, But suffice it to say, this is the guy who came up with the idea, and he believes that with enough support, with enough signatures, they can force the government to resign and get to get the Senate to abolish all vaccine mandates and so on and so forth. This is this is the premise of why they're in Ottawa. The people who he recruited into the cause represent a litany of groups that have tried suing the federal government, alleging that the COVID-19 vaccines are a way of microchipping the population. Others who say that there uh, is no scientific basis for PCR testing and that it, in fact, uh, wildly inflates COVID-19 statistics. Uh, there's other uh, conspiracy theorists in this um, in this movement who believe that there's an orchestrated attempt to destroy Canada's national identity by importing immigrants uh, and 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 uh, basically reducing the political power of white people. The the folks at the center of this are, if not outright extremists, at least conspiracy theorists and peddlers of misinformation. And it's important we focus on this because I think sometimes you hear people describe it as a trucker's protest or a protest only about these trucker vaccine mandates. Uh, And I think it gives them way more credibility than they deserve. Well, there's a a line in the piece here that I think that pretty much underscores exactly what you've been talking about here. One of these organizers that you just referred to, the one that thinks that the whole COVID thing is all a farce anyway, and it's just some government created or Bill Gates created aspect. Uh, the Facebook post uh, that he put up there uh, instructing his supporters to stop talking about this as vaccine <laughs> and just use the word freedom. Uh, they followed that mantra, by the way, and and, and the political uh, talking heads of Pierre Parlev and others, are, of course, have jumped right into this right now. Uh, that's changed the narrative dramatically, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, these folks are shockingly good at uh, image management, right? I cover a lot of extremist and conspiracy movements and can tell you the one thing they're generally really bad at is making themselves seem moderate, right? It's thankfully the fatal flaw of much of many successful conspiracy movements is that when people actually hear what they're proposing, people go, that's insane. I'm I'm not going to sign up for this. But these folks have done a really good job at projecting this image of uh, moderateness, um, of projecting this this sort of middle of the road set of complaints. And that has allowed people like Pierre Polyev and Candace Bergen to come out and and throw their support behind the occupation to to condemn the extremist elements, but to, to get behind the main 
body of the protest. Uh, and and it, you know, they didn't have to work too hard. They basically just said, stop talking about the vaccines. Stop talking about uh, QAnon. And, and even just recently, they've, they've said, stop talking about trying to get the governor general to, uh, to, you know, to do our work for us and to, to abolish these democratically passed laws. No, 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 no. This is all about the vaccine mandates. Just keep saying mandates and freedom and people will join our cause. And unfortunately, they were right. And it's sort of frustrating because you know, if you do a, even a little bit of digging, you realize what this group is really about, what these people are really asking for and what they're really proposing. And that should be reason enough to never associate yourself with this occupation. And yet many people haven't bothered to do that work or have done that work and just don't care and are happy to attach themselves to a grassroots uh, movement with momentum and a huge fundraising apparatus like Pierre Polyev. I think that's clearly what he's doing here. Um, and, you know, I think people will also say, even if the organizers are out to lunch, the everyday people who have joined the protest are much more reasonable. And I understand the sentiment there. And I certainly think the first weekend of this protest, there probably was a ton of really reasonable people there who just had a problem with vaccine mandates for truckers. But I can tell you, the people who remain are not moderate. They might be very lovely people and, and very, very nice nonviolent uh, protesters, but you walk through the crowd, you start talking to people, you listen to some of these interviews, you watch some of the live streams, you hear people peddling ridiculous information about uh, the safety of vaccines, about how vaccines are killing people, about uh, how they haven't been tested, how they're not safe, how there's still an open debate about the science. They even have scientific advisors there who have been repeatedly admonished or removed from their jobs because they're spreading misinformation. So there's really no reason to endorse these folks. Plenty of reason to be against mandates, plenty of reason to have problem with lockdown measures and some of the public health measures, but there's no reason to get behind these folks. They are anti-vaccine and they are not living in the same information environment as the rest of us. Uh, and I got to tell you, uh, you know, you got to look in the mirror when th things like this happen. Uh, the media's got a role to play here. And 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 I frankly was very upset with, with the way they started to handle this right from the beginning. Uh, because they they simply, you know, it was media laziness, frankly, journalistic laziness. Yeah. Uh, they they called this, and I, how, I don't know how many stories I saw over the last ten days or so uh, that said this freedom convoy. It's not a freedom convoy, but that's what they yeah. called it. So the media simply said, okay, that's what we'll yeah. call it. And it's 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 basically giving oxygen to a situation like that because every time there was a news coverage of this, they basically uh, were endorsing uh, what these guys were talking about right now. And and now, you know, they didn't create the monster, but they, they, they didn't really do a whole lot to try oh, to help sure. the situation. Without a doubt. I mean, you know, listen, I mean, between you and me and everyone listening, um, you know, I've spoken to some colleagues at the CBC uh, who told me that they've been you know, fighting this internal battle inside the CBC to get the broadcaster to acknowledge that the demands of this group involve, you know, removing democratically passed laws and potentially even ousting the government. And the bosses at CBC keep saying, no, we can't, we can't accuse them of that. You know, we have to both sides this. We have to give them their fair airing of their grievances and all this. There is, we, we have a complete inability to handle conspiracy movements and extremist movements in this country. Our media is not equipped for it. We are not trained on this. We are not prepared to do the digging necessary to actually pull apart these claims. And we have this horrible habit of, of, of platforming these these conspiracy theories and these baseless allegations and these unscientific mumbo jumbo we platform it and we give it a fair airing even though it has no credibility and we do a very 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 bad job of 
equipping people and arming people in the public with the tools necessary to to reject this this nonsense. We have totally failed at our jobs here. I am so frustrated <laughs> with many of my colleagues. I have for a week and a half, more two weeks now, been saying this convoy is led by conspiracy theorists. They are not going to leave until they get their way, and their way, their demands are completely intolerable. These people want to govern the country by fiat just because they have the wherewithal to lock down our capital for two weeks. It is, I have been warning for two weeks now that this is going to happen. And it felt like I was taking crazy pills last week as no one was listening. And now we're seeing the results of it. These people are not going to leave until the government's removed from power or until uh, you know the government, the Trudeau government steps in and, and, and overrides the provinces and abolishes all vaccine requirements at every level of government. It's not going to happen. So where are no, we going to go from here? Yeah. But, but as you say, I, I called it laziness, and I think there's a certain degree of that within the journalistic circles about this. And I know I don't want to get off on that tangent about, well, you know, newsrooms are a third of the size they used to be, et cetera. I mean, sometimes you just use your common sense. When you look at the people that are behind this, and, and as you point out in the article in The Guardian, uh, their history and what these people have done. But we saw this coming, didn't we? And you and I talked about this sure. during the federal election last year. When we saw the sorts of protests that were going on there, uh, you know, the same people, the same sorts of people and the same names, as a matter of fact, uh, that followed the prime minister around and some others, you know, the, the rock throwing and, and the other things that were going on. And what these people have done is simply latched on like, like you know, mollusks do and say, there's anti-vaxxers out there. I mean, look, at there's people in the healthcare field that are anti-vaxxers and they're ticked off because some yeah. of them have lost their jobs. There's truckers that are anti-vaxxers. There's, there's, you know professionals that are we get that mm. but they've they simply said okay that's the vehicle excuse the pun that we're going to use to, to latch onto this and we're that and we're just going to co-opt it which i have done and i i agree with you i'm sure there's some people initially in this protest that really truly just didn't want to get vaccinated and and they said i've got my right well you know whether that's right or wrong but they're being used and yeah. and and they're they're being used by these people that you write about. They're being used by the politicians in Ottawa who are using this protest now to try to whip up support and, frankly, money uh, for their campaigns. Uh, I mean, open your eyes, people. You you know you're being used as pawns in a situation like this. Oh, absolutely. I, I will quickly say there are some reporters out there who have been very clear-eyed about this, who oh, have yeah. covered those extremists um, in the last federal election campaign. Glenn McGregor at CTV, Dave Cochran at CBC, Alex Buehler at Global News, tons of good reporters. Yep. But, the, but the mainstream coverage, you're absolutely right, is totally blind to the mounting threat posed by these people. Think back. It was what, last year that a bunch of protesters came to Ottawa with a demand that Trudeau be arrested by the American embassy and tried for treason. A day afterwards, a guy drives through the front gates of Rideau Hall armed to the teeth with a shotgun and a bunch of uh, revolvers with a plan to kill the prime minister. In the weeks after that, the people who were camping at the National War Memorial tried to enact a bunch of citizens arrests on our members of parliament. This is what we've been enabling. And our media was totally indifferent to that story. There was a wild lack of coverage of that. There was an attempt to make the Corey Hearn, the guy who drove to the front gates, out as a friendly sausage maker with a couple of legitimate grievances. You know, we are so bad at this as a country. And I'm not saying we have to go around and lock these people up. I'm not saying we have to list them as terrorists. I'm not saying we have to eviscerate the right to protest or send to the military. But step one 
is calling out these people for what they are, not necessarily as horrible people, but as deeply misinformed people being taken advantage of, as you rightly say, by these leaders, by these conspiracy theorists, by these politicians, and being used to enact a deeply paranoid and antagonistic type of activism and politics in this country. In this country. And until we call it out and start tackling with it and figuring out how to de-radicalize these people and deprogram them and de-indoctrinate them with this nonsense, we're going to keep seeing this problem get worse. And you know, the pe- you're quite right. The people who are in Ottawa right now are the same people who have been leading anti-vaccine protests in Toronto and Montreal and Quebec City and Vancouver and Edmonton for a year now. These people didn't come out of the woodwork. They didn't recently realize all of this nonsense. They've been doing this for ages. This is just the first time they all got together in the same place. So for us to pretend like this is some organic outpouring of concern is nonsense. These people have been saying this for a year. We just haven't been listening. Well, and the signs have been there, and that's the frustration. And uh, it, it's a matter of understanding exactly who these people are and what they're they're trying to do here. And even yesterday, of course, and you just referenced the fact that they've withdrawn their manifesto, uh, uh, you know, uh, with the government. But they, in the same breath, uh, still said that they're willing to work with the coalition government after they boot the liberals out of office. Uh, you know, uh, you, this is not how we govern this country. It's not how we, we just don't allow that sort of thing. I, I don't understand why people aren't outraged about what these guys are even asking for. And it's pretty clear that the, the whole idea yeah. of mandate, in other words, now they're in Ottawa. So these guys are forgetting all about this vaccine stuff. You know, that, OK, that got us there. That got us the publicity. Now this is all about overthrowing the government. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know what? There's actually something really frustrating about this as well, in that the amount of coverage these people have gotten relatively uncritically, um, you know, not including that manifesto, as you quite rightly know, not including some of the comments they've made, some of the extremist elements to to this protest. All this coverage, I think, lends the perception to the public that this is a both sides argument, that these people represent a significant chunk of the country uh, and we're just we're just not listening to them. Right. I mean, I think folks at home are probably sitting there going, well, you know, there's a there's a significant part of the population who reject these vaccine mandates. And this is just, a, you know, the, the tip of the iceberg of that. But look at the polling data. Eighty percent of this country supports vaccine mandates for mo- for many sectors of the economy. Ninety percent are fully vaccinated. Seventy percent support vaccine passports. So these people, by definition, they love to to kind of sarcastically say, oh, we're just a small fringe minority. They are a small fringe minority. We know that, you know, if assuming that this this crew is is, you know, not vaccinated, they are a sliver of that 10 percent of the country who aren't vaccinated. We need to stop talking about these people as though they represent half of the country because they don't. They represent a very small portion of the population who have been indoctrinated into this misinformation. And in that small little bubble, because it is a bubble, because you know they don't listen to, to outside uh, news coverage, they don't listen to scientists, they don't listen to public health officials, they don't listen to politicians, they listen to nobody except the Rebel News uh, and Fox News and a bunch of their Facebook groups that peddle this misinformation. In their world, these vaccines are killing scores of people. They're ineffective at preventing COVID-19. COVID-19 is a bioweapon designed by a cabal of shadowy special interests and the media is all in on it this is all an attempt to eviscerate our civil liberties so that uh the world economic forum can can install a one world government and i am i'm telling you i see the sentiment daily dozens of times daily in all the facebook groups the telegram channels the live streams these people do this is their ideology 
And you need to reject this and explain to people that this is what they believe. Because if you don't, the public gets the perception that these people are just maybe a little off the side of the mainstream, but living in the same universe as us. And they're not. Well, I still remember the news report we saw last week. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and it had to do with the removal of Aaron O'Toole, of course, as a conservative leader. And apparently Candace Bergen was one of the people that was pushing O'Toole to be more uh, supportive of the truckers. And mm. the, the line that was quoted, apparently, and nobody has denied this right now, is she told O'Toole, there are good people on both sides. And boy, does that line ever resonate with us. I mean, that's Trump after Charlottesville. And if that doesn't tell you what the mindset of these people is, I don't know what does. Well, and I'll give you a little bit of a preview of a scoop that I have coming out this morning or this afternoon. Um, Candace Bergen, we know from the Globe and Mail's reporting, Candace Bergen uh, actually called on Aaron O'Toole to not not encourage them to go home, saying that they want to make this Justin Trudeau's problem. The same day or maybe the day before, she actually was out for dinner and bumped into two protesters. She went up to them and said, thank you for your work. Keep it up. The pressure's working. She was encouraging this pair to continue the occupation. And what's even more jarring is that uh, the MP she was with, Marilyn Gladue, posted the photo of the meeting on Facebook and said, just encouraging our hardworking truckers. Well, neither of the guys are actually truckers, at least not truckers impacted by the mandate. And both of them have spent a significant amount of time spreading COVID-19 vaccine misinformation and calling for Justin Trudeau to be arrested for treason. So the Conservative Party is is literally grabbing these people and saying, keep going, right? So they have to bear some responsibility for where we're at. They have absolutely tried to weaponize this movement, this deeply conspiratorial movement to their own ends. And the, the level of moral bankruptcy that goes into that is just galling. Justin Ling, a freelance investigative journalist for McLean's and uh, The Guardian. As a matter of fact, uh, you can go to The Guardian and uh, read the piece that we were just referencing. Keep doing what you're doing, my friend, and uh, we'll talk again soon. I appreciate your time today. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's focus on what's going on in Windsor right now and uh, the impact this is going to have. I mean, we've talked for months now about economic recovery, trying to get out of the pandemic, getting businesses back on their feet. Uh, this can't be helping. As uh, Global Zan Gaviola reports, uh, there's a lot of people that are impacted by this. It's really, it's really disheartening. First bite treats in Ottawa's Byward Market started the year off with a lockdown. Then the protest convoy descended on nearby Parliament Hill. And the financial toll is painful as people and delivery services shun the downtown core. Business has been, to be frank, um, Pretty tough. The Rideau Centre, Ottawa's largest mall with 175 shops, has been closed since the weekend, affecting thousands of employees and neighbouring businesses. Mall owner Cadillac Fairview says the continued closure of an important community space, loss of employment income and financial impact on clients is heartbreaking given our shared pain and sacrifice during the pandemic. Well, and that's one element of it, of course, what's happening in downtown Ottawa. But then when you look at some of the border uh, closures that have happened over the last little while, of course, in the southern Alberta border uh, and in southwestern Ontario, we can talk about the Windsor-Detroit situation and what's happening on the Ambassador Bridge. And uh, what kind of an impact is something like this going to have? Uh, to uh, get some clarity on this, we're pleased to welcome to the program uh, Michael Manjuras, who is a professor at the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University. Uh, professor, honored to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Hi, Bill. Good morning. You know, we, I was just mentioning in my preamble here, we've talked so much about economic recovery and the tools that businesses and, and larger corporations are going to need. 
uh, to get back on their feet economically. Uh, what we're seeing on, on the Ambassador Bridge and uh, I guess even uh, some of the other uh, entry points between Canada and the U.S. in the last little while is, is a giant step backwards in that in that regard. Well, it is in, in the sense that, and we've talked in your show before, in the sense that um, many manufacturers here in Canada, particularly in southwestern Ontario, rely on these crossings to help them uh, use what's called just-in-time. So uh, just-in-time is merely a system that says, you know, the truckers are bringing parts in, particularly to the automotive industry. Those parts arrive at the manufacturing plant just-in-time, and that allows for, you know, really good efficient production, really low-cost production that gives us all an advantage in terms of pricing when there's a disruption particularly the kind of disruption we're seeing you know then that just you know throws a a wrench in in the works well there are phrases i guess uh, as we've discussed over the last couple of months uh, that uh, have become part of our everyday language right now things like supply chain and and things like that that we didn't pay a whole lot of attention we i guess probably took them for granted Uh, but when there's a, a major interruption like this uh, I mean, the stat I saw yesterday was was pretty frightening. That said, about a quarter of U.S. Canada trade is is now at a standstill because of what's going on on that one bridge in Windsor. That is correct. It is, it, you know, the the trade flow across that bridge is a, a quarter of all trade we do with the United States. And to put that into perspective, that's around four hundred million dollars U.S. a day that is now being affected. Uh, there, there's um, there's a story of a trucker that's sitting over on the U.S. side. He's been waiting thirteen hours to cross. He's bringing auto parts uh, to the, um, the Chrysler plant in Windsor. So literally, after he crosses the bridge, it's, it's about a 20-minute drive to the plant, and he can't get there. That's just a small example of, of the kinds of things that are being affected. Well, it is. And, and I, I mean, I've seen the aerial shots of, of the bridge, and you, know, you see nothing but trucks on the bridge right now. And at first blush, when I first saw that, I thought, okay, that's not unusual. I mean, I, every time I go to Windsor, that's all I see on that bridge is trucks. But that's a good thing. That's commerce. That's stuff moving back and forth. When they're stuck like this and, and businesses can't get across and and, and products and, can't, and raw materials can't get across like this, uh, it's ha- not just having an impact on Windsor. As you mentioned, it's, it's going to have an impact on the auto industry and so many other things uh, that we've been talking about. And, and put this in the context of the angst, I guess, a lot of us have felt about supply chains. And, you know, we're talking about empty shelves on grocery stores or, you know, Home Depot or whatever it is. Uh, it's going to get worse if this continues. Well, that's right. We're going to see empty shelves, not just... Uh as you say, in the automotive business, but we're going to see it right across the board. Big box, you know, Costco would be another example, Costco Canada. Yeah. They're already starting to see a strain on their their inventory here in Canada simply because it can't be replenished because of these delays. And that and that's fairly standard when, when there's a delay in supply chain management for whatever reason. You know, over the last two years, the big reason has been COVID itself, people sick and not being able to uh, come to work at the retail level or come to work in the transportation level. And we see that then strains on the system. But we've been able to to manage that. We've been able to at least keep a minimum level uh, on the shelves and replenish them over time. Now we've got a stoppage. This is different. And that stoppage means that we're going to see a backup of that inventory, you know, back in the source in the United States and emptiness and the shelves that we have here right across the board. Well, and what's causing a great deal of the frustration, I suppose, is is the logistics of this, and I, I don't want to go too much into the weeds politically on this, but you can't help it, but but get into it to a certain extent because of why this is happening. 
uh, with supply chains. Uh, it's, it's, I think, worthy of noting here, Professor, the overwhelming majority of, of truckers are working. Uh, they're, not, they're not protesting. Uh, the, over, the majority of truckers have been fully vaccinated, and they're, they're trying to do their job bringing goods back and forth like this. And, and you know, to have this, this handful of people, when you look at the greater number of people that are driving trucks in North America that are basically bringing commerce to a halt, uh, it's it's got to be frustrating, and it's not just as customers, you and I, as as consumers, but the people in the industry right now who are trying to do the job and trying to fill those shelves again are not being allowed to. No question, Bill. To put some numbers uh, beside or to what you've just said, ten percent of the truckers, sorry, ninety percent of the truckers belong that belong to the uh, Canadian Trucking Association are fully vaccinated, and what we're seeing is under ten percent of the trucking community doing all this. So it's it's clearly a minority. Um, you know, I we've kind of jumped into the political weeds here a little bit, but as you say, we kind of have to. So really what I want to say is a couple of things. First of all, it, these people have a right to protest. I don't think there's any question sure. uh, re- related to their right to protest, but they do not have a right to sort of occupy and block and cause harm, first of all, in general to our economy, but then to individuals, as you're mentioning, to other truckers, for example. Um, so there has to be some way to to um, balance out their interests with the interests of the majority. The other piece I really want to say here is that, you know, the enemy is not the government of Canada or the government of the United States or any kind of provincial or territorial leader. The, the enemy here is the virus itself. And all we're trying to do, and I think what Canada has done very, very well, is we're trying to manage the risk related to that virus. And by asking people to be vaccinated, that's the other piece. It's not a mandate. It's saying you have a choice. Um, If you want this kind of job and you're going to cross an international boundary, you need to be vaccinated. And by the way, it's not just Canada saying that. It's the United States as well. And if you don't want to, that's a choice. But it simply means then you can't perform that service. And and that's the part that has always sort of frustrated me individually is by saying, it is a choice. You, you know, people want a choice, and certainly they should have that. Well, the government's given them that, but they shouldn't be holding up the rest of us, if you wish, as a ransom in order for them to get their way. Well, and there's a bit of a misrepresentation going on here, too. So, you know, they keep using the word freedom, which bothers me because this yeah, freedom from what? I, I don't understand. Freedom from responsibility, because that's really what this comes down to. I, I talked to some people in the industry, and I know you do on a pretty regular basis, the rules and regulations to qualify uh, to drive truck and to be in business like this are, are pages and pages long, the things that you need to do, the boxes you need to check. Uh, so, you know, this is just one of those other regulations. I mean, it's the same as any other job you go to. You know, no shirt, no shoes, no service. Uh, you know, you can't show up to work with no shirt on and expect people are going to allow you to do that. Uh, and and this is the same thing. It's it, you know, they're drawing the line here and, and, and making a stand on something that I, I just don't think a lot of people are in agreement with. Uh, as you say, 90% of the people in this country are vaccinated. 90% of the truckers are vaccinated. 100% of the people are, are frustrated by this COVID thing, all of us. But the, you know, the people that, that are the experts in this, the, the medical people, tell us the only way that we're going to get rid of this is is to follow through on this vaccination element of it. And, and, it's it's become political right now, and I understand you know that there's an element that that's never going to change. They're going to be digging their heels in, and they're going to be adamant about this. But how long can this go on before somebody has to simply say, "All right, enough is enough. We've got to get this stuff moving again," or somebody gets hurt? You're right, well, and, and I think I think that you know they're again we're asking our police and our enforce you know our, our uh, whether it be provincial or or a city police, we're asking them 
you know, to do something that is pretty tricky, you know, give them credit. They've, they've shown patience. They've, they've shown restraint. Um, they're the ones that make the decisions on when to enforce. Uh, and I know that they're trying to de-escalate situations, not just in, at, at the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor, but also in Ottawa, the Coots Crossing in Alberta and, and some other places that we've seen protests happen um, in Toronto, for example, as well. But, I, you know, so give them credit, give the police credit that they haven't just kind of gone in, you know, with, with their batons wailing away or any of that kind of um, what I would call overreach. They've been very patient and shown that, you know, we are asking uh, our government to provide a system to prevent damage to our economy, to prevent um, us from getting sick. And our governments have done that. And actually, when you compare Canada to the rest of the world, we're in pretty good shape compared to others. So they've done a decent job. We have a pocket of Canadians, if they are Canadians, um, that don't agree with that and want to resist it and want to protest. And that's fine. Stand, you know, you've made your, your point. You've said your bit. Now stand aside. Let karmas continue. You can continue to protest. You can continue to voice your, your position. But you don't need to affect or harm, either economically or from a health perspective, the rest of us. And I, I think that's the message that most business people, and certainly those in the trucking industry, the majority of them that I've talked to, that's what they want to say. They want to say, look, okay, protest, but let me do my job. And I want to spend a couple of minutes, I guess, in our remaining time here talking about some of the ramifications of this. You heard uh, the clip we played just before you joined us uh, this morning, Ann Gaviola talking about what was going on in downtown Ottawa. Anybody who's visited the Capitol, I'm sure they know that indoor mall that she was referring to, that's basically been shut down because of this. Uh, and that may be an inconvenience to somebody that wants to go buy a pair of shoes or whatever the case might be. But think of how many hundreds of people are not being allowed to go to work now. And if you're not working, you're not getting paid. And the, the loss of, of, of income that's happening with the store owners, magnify that by I don't know how many times, Professor, if the, the supply chain continues to be jammed up the way it is right now. And you mentioned the auto industry, of course, the one guy that you talked about here who's got auto parts. There's other stuff there, too. You know, I mean, we start... You know, do we see shoppers' drug mart shelves and, and it, like you say, Costco shelves and everything going empty and grocery store shelves going empty? That means people get laid off. Uh, this is going to have a long-lasting and, and very uh, profound effect on, on our economic impact here. And, and at what point do we say, okay, enough is enough? I don't want to lose my job because I can't get any products to sell. Well, and you're hearing the frustration from people that are working in that mall in um, the Rideau Center in Ottawa itself. You know, the typical person working in retail is getting paid minimum wage or perhaps slightly above minimum wage. And, and they're using this money to do what? Well, they're using the money to pay their rent or uh, you know other, other household expenses like food, or take care of their children, et cetera. Now they've got zero. And this has gone on for 10 days. So that means they have zero pay for 10 days. You know, that's very critical for them. It's they're unable to, you know, provide or pay their rent, et cetera. Um, Cadillac Fairview will survive. So the big corporation will survive. It's the smaller people that, you know, you and I have just identified. They're the ones that will be most effective and it will be long term. So that's why I say what I what I said earlier, which is, OK, it's enough time. You've protested. You've made your, your point uh, to the truckers, et cetera. Let's move aside. You can still stay at these crossings. You can still get media attention. You know, you can still have your voice voice heard, but you don't have to do it in a way that is now damaging the, you know, the lives and perhaps freedoms of others. Well, I, I, I want to do a quick analogy here. I, a couple of years ago, of course, university workers and, and community college workers have gone on strike at various times, and they've set up picket lines at the entrances to the colleges. 
Uh, but that doesn't mean they wouldn't let anybody in. I mean, they, there would be a delay, but eventually they'd open it up and, okay, everybody can go in and then we're going to do it again because they understood the importance. People still have to work and they have to do their jobs. We're not getting that sort of uh, attitude and that sort of cooperation uh, at this level when these are going on. I, I, in a broader sense, though, we look at this, and this is because of a protest. There could have been another catastrophe that did this. Are we going to learn from this and, and be cognizant of the fact that, uh, that this is a, a very, very concerning area here that if this what we've already seen the supply chain basically dry up because this one bridge uh is so important to that uh as it is of course in in the southern piece of alberta right now uh do we try to diversify i know there's an ongoing argument as you know about uh you know twinning that bridge and it's taken an awful long time to get any sense of cooperation on this uh, but can we learn from this or are we going to be held captive again somewhere down the road because people are going to look at this and say i know how to get their attention do this I guess the answer is I hope so. Uh, one of the things that we have to be sure if we want to continue to enjoy the kind of uh, standard of, of living that we have in Canada is we have to learn that, you know, something like supply chain management is a theory, but that theory does not necessarily uh, work in every situation. It's not just the case of, of uh, you know, unrest due to protest. It could be climate change and, and that shuts down the bridge. So we, uh, we have to have kind of a backup plan and design into our existing system that backup plan, like you said, twinning of the bridge. Or for example, many of these truckers are now being diverted uh, up through uh, Port Huron on the um, on the Michigan side and Sarnia, Ontario on our side. They're mm-hmm. being diverted to that crossing. Okay, so we've now got two crossings. Perhaps we need two or three more and we have to work with our American colleagues to make that happen. So we have more options. And as soon as we have that, we have less we provide less of an opportunity for those who want to disrupt our supply chain management in the future. We, have, we provide them with less opportunity to do so. Well, that's got to be part of the discussion going forward, I hope. Uh, Michael, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. I hope. Uh, well, Bill, thank you very much. Uh, just one last comment I want to make, and that sure. is I just feel that the discourse um, it, it is very un-Canadian. That, you know, the, to the, the protesters, if you don't agree with our prime minister or you don't agree with our government, absolutely voice that. But I don't think we need to use, you know, some of the profanity and some of the language going forward. To me, that's just very un-Canadian. I just want to voice that. Agreed. Excellent. Thanks again, Michael. Take care. Thank you, Bill. Professor Michael Manjuris uh, from uh, the Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.